The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to look at uh, a little bit of something called the Hermetic Arcanum. And this is a collection of writings that was put together, uh, some of them dating back to 1623. One of the uh, most well read and well known of the alchemical tracts of the Rosicrucian Society. Uh, this was known as the Hermetic Arcanum. Written in 1623, originally in Latin, and is, this was painstakingly translated by W. Wynne Westcott in 1893. With additional notes from some anonymous hermeticists who wanted to get their, their two cents in in this as well. And they used the pen name Sepir Ade which means dare to know. So we're going to read from this tonight. And this explores a lot of basic alchemical concepts and lays down some of the foundations of the Rosicrucian philosophy. And not just the Rosicrucian philosophy, the Hermetic philosophies in general. And this is some of the earliest works we could get from that group that came to be known as the Rosicrucians about the things that they teach. This is largely considered by many that study these topics. The Rosicrucians are largely considered to be the one of the uh, streams which carries forward this alchemical knowledge. So we're going to look at this. We're going to read into this book, and this is one the first volume, I guess, of a number of volumes that uh, Westcott decided to put to paper and translate. Uh, and he did an excellent job getting this information out there. The only thing is, a lot of it is in somewhat coded language, if you're not familiar with some of the, the key precepts of the alchemical concepts uh, that are conveyed here. So a lot of it is going to be kind of cryptic. But I think if you've been listening to this program for some length of time, you'll probably have a much better idea of what's being touched upon than any, you know, person out there that uh, has never been exposed to this kind of stuff. So I think you'll you'll pick up what the author is putting down uh, along with this as we go through. So we're going to read a little bit of the, uh, we'll read the preface and uh, we'll get into the first part here. I'm not sure how far we're going to get on this tonight, but it's just to lay down some of the key foundations to what's taught, especially by the Rosicrucians, within some of these secret schools. And it'll lay down some of the hermetic principles that are commonly accepted, and it'll lay down some of the alchemical thoughts that have been brought forward and some of the precepts by which it goes. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get into it here. Preface to the Arcanum. The Arcanum Hermeticum has been chosen for the first volume of the Collectinia 
Hermetica, because since its first publication in 1623 in the Latin language, no alchemic tract has been more widely read, and no other has been so often reprinted, alike in Latin, German, French, and English. The author, Jean de Espagnier, was sometime president of the Parliament of Bordeaux. He flourished from 1600 to 1630 and obtained a great reputation as a hermetic philosopher and alchemist. Two of his alchemic works are alone extant, Enchiridion Physi Restitute and Arcanum Philosophy Hermetica. Of these, the former treats of those theories of chemical constitution upon which the possibility of transmutation of metals depends, and the latter of the practice of alchemy. The Arcanum was first published in 1623 in France. Five subsequent French editions in the original Latin are known, and an edition in the French tongue was printed in 1651 from the translation of Jean Bouchon. Several editions were also published at Geneva, Kiel, Lübeck, Tübingen, and Leipzig. The works of Espagnier are also included in Manguet's Bibliotheca Chemica Curiosa and in the Bibliotheca Chemica of Albinius. Jean de Espagnier followed the usual Rosicrucian custom of using a motto instead of his name when publishing hermetic books. The hermetic arcanum is signed Penes Nos Unda Tagi. He also at times added the motto Space Mea in Agno Est. These mottos are anagrams, each contains the letters of Espanier, and the two taken together contain also the letters of Dias, I-H-V-H, with the shin interposed, Omnia in Nos, but there are two letters over A and S. The French biographer says, in error, that only one letter, an E, his initial, remains over. Espanier was not only an alchemist, but a mystic as well. He contributed a preface and a sonnet to a work by Pierre de Lancret, entitled Tableau de l'Inconstances de Mavesis Angis in 1612. He is also notable as having taken a leading part in the prosecution of persons who were supposed to be black magicians, living in the district called Les Landes and among the Pyrenees. But this action appears to have been the result of his position in the Parliament of Bordeaux. He ornamented the facade of his house in the Rue des Bahoteurs at Bordeaux with allegorical sculptures and devices. The house has been destroyed, but these ornaments are still to be seen, preserved in the gardens of the mayoral residence. As a natural philosopher, Jean d'Espagnier declined to be led by the notions of Aristotle and preferred those of the Alexandrian schools. He postulated the ideal of one material universal basis, or hyle, from which all varieties of matter have been evolved by stages of development, a necessary doctrine for one who taught the mutual convertibility of the so-called chemical elementary substances. He also insisted upon the importance of representing all manifestation as separable into three worlds, elementary, celestial, and archetypal. This division is related to the scheme of the four worlds of the Kabbalists by a concentration which is recognized by such philosophers. 
He taught the origin of created things from the chaos of the first matter, which under the energetic impulse of the divine force, proceeds from stage to stage of development into heterogeneity. He recognized three stages of matter, the subtle, the mean, and the gross, analogous to the airy, moist, and earthy natures of the Hermeticists. Upon these bases, his Enchiridion is almost a textbook of Rosicrucian philosophy. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. It's important that we read through this preface to see where some of these ideas came from and exactly what they're setting up and to hear in their own words, the key points to the things that they believe. That's why I wanted to read through a lot of this. So you see, he talks about the importance of representing all manifestation as separable into three different worlds, the elementary, the celestial, and the archetypal. See, so we've been through uh, some of the talks before about uh, how oftentimes these occultists will split up these concepts into different variable things that are described differently by these different groups. Uh, so it's important to see here, once again, you have the, the three worlds aspect here. And then it also speaks about how the divine force, and this is what they believe, folks, the force. <laughs> I know, it sounds a little hokey, doesn't it? Star Wars, the force. Where do you think all that came from? Did you really think that was a creation of George Lucas's mind? No, sir. It was not. It's the modern myth representation of the belief systems of the mystery schools, this divine force. See, what they believe is slightly different from what uh, Christian theology would teach you or what uh, is believed by many people. That the universe was created by God, the creator. He created everything, spoke it into existence. Well, these people within the different mystery schools or the secret society groups here that bring forward these ideas, they believe that matter or everything, the, the universe itself, existed prior to the advent of God speaking it into existence. They don't believe that any such thing happened. It just is. And that uh, this universe, this chaos, see, that's the thing, chaos of the first matter, was sp was organized under the impulse of the divine force. So they see God as being a divine force. They see the divine force as being the intelligence that crafted things into existence here. The uh, building blocks of it were already present. This is what they believe. Okay, this is what they teach. This is not me saying this. I actually don't see the logic in that, that uh, here is all this stuff that just is, and then there's this divine force that all of a sudden just is, and then this makes primordial first matter out of the chaos that ensued. At any rate, this is one of the things they teach, and this is uh, some of the, the foundations upon which they, they teach much of their philosophy. But let's continue reading here, and we'll get uh, a little further along, and it's going to touch on some more cryptic or archaic points here that... Uh, you may have a little better understanding of after going through, uh, you know, a lot of listening to these types of programs. The Arcanum describes at considerable length and with obvious good faith the procedure of one school of alchemists in search for the secret of the stone philosophical, and it formulates the stages of the work. 
so that he or she who can read may run. Yet, it must be confessed that he has well succeeded in revealing, as well as revealing, the secret of what was meant by the prima materia, and the real nature alike of the sulfur, the salt, and the mercury. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. These are all key terms in alchemy. The sulfur, the salt, and the mercury. And he uses capital T for the, and capital S for the salt and the sulfur, and a capital M for the mercury. So these are important ideas, and these are talking about something other than what your common man would think of as sulfur, salt, or mercury. These are philosophical elements being discussed here, and they could vary from uh, alchemical procedure to alchemical procedure as to what they represent. See, it's a symbol put in place of a secret uh, recipe of sorts, so the sulfur will represent something else when they're talking about the sulfur in an alchemical work. It doesn't represent sulfur, okay? It represents something completely different than what you're thinking as far as the chemical constituents of things. That's not what it's talking about at all. It's a substitute word. Let's put it that way. These are all substitute words. And all these alchemical processes, they have these three different components that must be applied at just the right time, but they're not all the same thing in every alchemical work. See, they use the same term, the sulfur, the salt, and the mercury, but each one of those components in each individual alchemical process can represent different things within that process. See, and this is how people got confused. It's a secret language of sorts that the alchemists crafted here, and they disguised what they were doing with this. So even when they're talking about the prima materia, what are they talking about? They're talking about this first matter. And uh, what is this first matter? Well, it's the chaos that they spoke of here earlier, but uh, it goes beyond that, okay? And, and this is one of the core constituents to the alchemical process. It talks about the stone philosophical, otherwise known as the philosopher's stone, the secrets of that, the secrets of transmutation, and this is the kind of thing that this lays the groundwork for. But in order to better understand it, first you need to get past the code words. And that's what I'm trying to break down here tonight, give you a little bit of a, a base level teaching on the alchemical processes. So when you hear the sulfur, the salt, or the mercury being discussed in any particular alchemical process, it's not necessarily talking about the same thing in each and every process. These components change, varying upon what the process is, what's being produced. So this could be also applied to different facets of the nature of, uh, what should we say, the, the, the kingdoms? of the world as classified here because they classify there's the mineral kingdom the plant kingdom the animal kingdom and the human kingdom so each one of these applications of sulfur salt and mercury could vary based upon those different kingdoms they're being applied to what they are what they represent what the outcomes will be and there's also many other factors that go into it and timing is everything in alchemy that's why you see such importance uh, put on the astrological side of things, the, the position of the moon, position of the stars, the season that we're in. There's so many aspects that go into this. And some of these processes are 
practical to some degree or another. That's why uh, it's good if you're first trying to be introduced to alchemy is look at the branch of alchemy called spagyrics. That's the alchemy of the plant kingdom. This would be taking herbs and, you know, different different plant-based materials, vegetation and such, and making tinctures and stuff out of it. See, homeopathy has its roots in alchemy. So see, many of these things fall back on that idea. And this demonstrates how the process works in a pretty good regard for anybody, because the process works very similarly across all the different kingdoms. And then there's also the greater alchemy, the spiritual alchemy, which is totally different from what you've been taught. So uh, there, there's so many different aspects to it, and we're going to just touch on some of the key points. But this is a topic that takes a whole lot of study to get a true understanding of. But the whole key here is to understand at first, when you're hearing these words mentioned, it sounds like a whole lot of nonsense. It gets confusing and convoluted. And at times, you could get lost because they use these different kinds of terms and it sounds like, okay, well, this sounds like a bunch of uh, mad scientists in a, you know, a lab somewhere mixing chemicals together and you know, claiming they get these results. That's not it at all. Not at all. So when you understand that and get past the coded language, then you could break down what's being really said here. But let's read on. I don't want to belabor that point too long. Such a work as the Arcanum, written by one who knows, is not set to print to teach the public, to show a cheap and easy way to wealth and luxury, or to assist coiners of spurious monies, but is intended as a treasure house in which those who have devoted life and love to the quest may find stored up the data and experiences of such as have trodden the path and have borne tribulation and persecution, counting all loss to be gain in their progress to success and to the possession of that stone of the wise, which when obtained can indeed transmute the things of the material world but does also equally work upon all higher planes and enables an adept to soar unheeding into worlds of joy, wisdom, and exaltation which are unseen, unknown, and inconceivable to ordinary mortals who have chosen the alternative of physical contentment and material happiness. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. So, what do we mean by that? who have chosen the alternative of physical contentment and material happiness. Well, this is speaking directly to gross materialism. Those people that are just caught up in the things of this world, they have no hope of understanding alchemy, the process here. They have no hope of that because they're too caught up in the physical material world. They think solely in these terms, and this is what our modern-day science has done to us. Modern-day science has steered the human mind into thinking in strictly physical, material world terms, objective things, rather than subjective spiritual things. If you can't conceive of the nuance of one idea being substituted for another in the way that the alchemists have to, then you're not going to pick it up. You're not going to understand it. You're going to miss the, 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 the point. You're going to miss the bus on this if you can't get past the idea of just strictly objective, physical, measurable things. 
Okay, this speaks to something beyond that. It speaks about influence from invisible worlds that we know little to nothing about. Causal worlds, right? That, that's exactly what they speak of. So when you understand that uh, manifestation doesn't start here in the physical world, nor does it end here in the physical world, this is just a transient state that we're in, in this, this physical material plane here. So when you understand this, well, then you could open your mind up a little bit more and understand some of the principles that are being communicated when they use these key alchemical terms. It's not a fixed substance. So that's, that's the whole context here that we need to know. But let's continue on. The original Latin title is given at the first page together with an English translation the German edition of 1685 Leipzig was entitled, I'm not going to try to pronounce that because I don't speak German very well, and I will butcher it, so I'm going to skip that. Uh, so it's Hermetic Philosophy. We'll translate it to English. This has an additional preface, uh, and it says here that uh, it's just a misspelling of one of the names that the author points out here. That would be uh, Mr. W. W. Westcott. Okay. Win Westcott. Uh, so he's pointing out that there were some translational errors and things like that he had to fix. Uh, an English translation was made by James Hussell, Chiest Mercuriophilus Anglicus. This is the anagram and pseudonym of a Elias Ashmole. Famous as an antiquary, copies of his third edition of 1650 are not uncommon. The present editor of the Hermetic Arcanum had at first intended to reprint Ashmole's version in its entirety, but a comparison with the original Latin has induced him to make a revision of Ashmole's translation because he discovered many important inaccuracies and also because in some places the language was more forcible and plain than our present delicate manners would appreciate. So let's pause for a second there. So what does he mean by the language was more forcible and plain than our present delicate manners would appreciate? Well, remember, this is coming from the perspective of the secret schools. They don't want to make it plain to outsiders what they're talking about, so they disguise their language. And this was actually acknowledged a little bit earlier in this preface here, where he said that... Uh, much of the writing was reveiled as well as revealed. So it's talking about putting a facade that people can't understand on the, the face of it to disguise the true nature of the ideas. So they're very careful about what they put to paper within these secret orders and brotherhoods. So with that being said, they're very careful the language they choose, especially in written form. That's why it's so difficult sometimes to navigate through a lot of this stuff. Because it's never completely explained plainly for you. And it says here, Ashmole's interpretation, or his translation, explained things a little bit too plainly for the likings of Westcott here. So he altered some of the writings. And uh, it also says that he found some errors in there. And I don't know if they were truly errors, or if... You know, Westcott just changed things slightly to fit his personal bias or his personal agenda for. And this is what we have to be mindful of, because this goes on all through the history of these secret brotherhoods. They take some of the older teachings, 
twist them just a little bit to suit a, a, a sort of agenda, a personal agenda or a personal bias. And then other people pick up this work and further do the same thing. So how much of what's come forward today is actually the true beginning intention of what was mentioned? So you have to wonder, what did Ashmole put to paper that uh, Wynne Westcott here thought was maybe a little too revealing or maybe he didn't agree with that he thought was in error? What did he exactly, you know, change? We don't know. He doesn't really go into detail about what it is exactly he changed. But now we're at this point where we get this translation of these works, these various works that go back to 1623. And now we have in 1893 a different translation of sorts put to it. So now we're at the mercy of Westcott here. Is he telling us for true and for real what this actually said? what the original translation was. Is it staying true to the spirit of what's there? And this is a problem we've had all through history, and people will argue this even with translations of the Bible. So uh, this is always something you have to keep in mind. Translations of everything, there's always kind of misinterpretations in translation. Uh, there's words dropped. There's, you know, slight changes made here and there. And sometimes they're intentional, sometimes they're not. Well, this clearly is intentional of Westcott. He points it out here in the preface. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. So he's made some changes, and he recognizes he's made those changes and acknowledges he made changes. And now, those of us that are reading it today, uh, those of us especially that don't speak other languages, don't speak Latin, don't speak French, don't speak German, and these other languages you know, that some of these older translations were made in, well, we're at the mercy of this guy telling us what they said. So this is the best we have to work with. So we need to take stuff like this with a grain of salt and understand there was probably something changed in the interim because you're talking, this is about 270 years of time between these writings now that he translated into uh, more modern English. That's the other thing too. Uh, a lot of the archaic languages, they, they don't translate exactly in modern English. So you lose a little bit of nuance in the translation as well. And th this has been a problem for a lot of different things. There's a lot of words that they had in the Greek that we don't even have words for in the English language, for instance. So it makes it incredibly convoluted at times to try to convey whole ideas in this way when you don't have the words to actually apply to describe them. So this is where we're at. S-A, and that would be Sapir Ade, is responsible for most of the notes. A few are from Sigismund Backstrom, Frater R.R. at E-A-C, and others are from the marginal references of an anonymous adept writing in 1710. And it says here it's signed Sepir Ade, which means dare to know. And that's a pen name of somebody here, of an anonymous Rosicrucian who did a portion of the introduction here. So let's get into it. Now we're going to learn some of the basics about the Hermetic Arcanum, as they call it. So these would be some of the uh, key tenets that Rosicrucianism teaches about alchemy. And Rosicrucianism 
is largely considered by those who study the occult sciences today to be probably the main underground stream of alchemical knowledge in the world today. This is where many of the ideas are derived from that have gone through all the other secret brotherhoods, the Freemasons, the Order of the Eastern Star, the Order of the Golden Dawn, all of these different organizations, the OTO, all of these ones that teach some tenets of the alchemical processes. This all came from, primarily, many of these early Rosicrucian writings. Uh, the Theosophical Society, all of these different various groups. There's so many of them. They're very numerous, and they all think they have the actual key to everything, to the knowledge of the secrets of the ages. They, they seem to think that their particular order has it right, and other orders have it wrong. Much like the religions of the world. Many think they have it right, and the others have it wrong. You see a lot of this goes on. It's, it's all part of human nature as well. But uh, let's lay down some of these key points. And like I said, I don't know how far into this we're going to get tonight. Because this is quite the lengthy book here, The Hermetic Arcanum. It's very hard to squeeze a lot of these philosophical ideas into one book. But this gives you a pretty good primer on some of the, the bases on which the Rosicrucian Brotherhood teaches the alchemical processes and teaches some of the secrets, so to say, of the Arcanum here. The beginning of this divine science is the fear of the Lord, and its end is charity and love toward our neighbor. The all-satisfying golden crop is properly devoted to the rearing and endowing of temples and hospices, for whatsoever the Almighty freely bestoweth on us, we should properly offer again to him. So also countries grievously oppressed may be set free, Prisoners unduly held captive may be released, and souls almost starved may be relieved. And that was number one. That was point number one of the foundations that they're teaching here. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. They claim here that whatsoever the Almighty freely bestows on us, we should properly offer again to him. So it says here, countries that grievously oppressed may be set free, prisoners may, that are held captive be released, souls that are almost starved may be relieved. But you notice the one thing that they never do is share their secret knowledge with the public. Do, do you see the contradiction right out of the gate here? There's no mention of that. And, uh, you know, I always hear them say things like, don't cast your pearls before swine and that kind of thing. But that only goes so far. If this is something that's important for human beings to know, right? If this is something that uh, is pertinent to your soul, this kind of information, then it should be freely available to everybody, and it wasn't always that way. Still to this day, it isn't truly that way. Even though most of this is now available in the public domain, you could go out and find these books now on the Internet, which wasn't around before. Prior to the age of the internet, you weren't able to find this stuff unless you knew somebody from one of these secret orders. You had access to a Masonic library somewhere, and you knew what you were looking for. Only then would you be able to find something like this. Now this information's out there for anybody who wants it. But see, the problem today is people don't want it. They don't look for it. They don't even know what they don't know. And that's the problem. Because these secret brotherhoods have kept this hidden from mankind for so long, that uh, if it's that important, why? Why hold the secrets? 
Well, because it's about controlling and manipulating people. That's what these secret society groups are all about. Controlling and manipulating people. That's the base of what they stand for. See, it's about greed. It's about pride. It's about, you know, knowing something somebody else doesn't. That's why everything is dependent upon secrecy in these brotherhoods. The secret. What's the point of a secret? To control somebody. So you see, it's been manipulated by these secret society groups. They've taken this knowledge, they've weaponized it against others for purposes of control and power. It's to have power over others. That's why you keep secrets. That's what secrecy is about. To know something somebody else doesn't gives you power over them. You understand? That's the only reason for keeping this kind of stuff secret. If it's so important, it should be public knowledge. And then, you know, if if somebody freely wants to seek it, great. And if they think it's nonsense and turn away, well, that's their prerogative and their choice. And I think that's where we're at right now. The only problem is they've kept it hidden so long, and they've poo-pooed the ideas for so long for the general public that people don't even consider it anymore. And that's a real problem because it gives you better descriptions of how the world really works than what our modern science does. But let's get to point number two here. Number two, the light of this knowledge is the gift of God, which by his will he bestoweth upon whom he pleaseth. Let none therefore set himself to the study hereof until having cleared and purified his heart, he devote himself wholly unto God and be emptied of all affection and desire unto the impure things of this world. Going to pause there, folks. So once again, you see a contradiction in the way they do things, in the way they teach. See, they're they're saying here that uh, God bestows upon whom he pleases this gift of knowledge. And, you know, then it says, well, let none therefore set himself to the study thereof if they, they haven't purified themselves, if they haven't made themselves empty of all the affections of this world, all the, the sinful nature of this world. This is where they get the concept of don't cast your pearls before swine. This is where they get the concept of, well, we need to keep this stuff from the unworthy masses, the useless eaters. That's the attitude they have. They don't think you're worthy. And who are they to judge? They think because you don't belong to their brotherhood, you haven't undergone their initiation, you haven't studied the symbols that they have, that you're not worthy to even have access to this knowledge, and therefore you have no right to delve into the study thereof, unless you join their fraternity. You see how this works? But see, that's a contradiction, again, right there in their own teachings. God bestows upon who he pleases this knowledge, this gift of knowledge, and many people, many people would pursue this knowledge, want want to learn more, and dig deeper, and they, they try to do that on their own. And these people, they don't like that. Because you're not one of the one of the in their brotherhood. You didn't go the, through the initiation route, you didn't take the secret oaths, you didn't swear to uphold your allegiance to the brotherhood and the furtherance of the brotherhood, and not to divulge the secrets. So therefore you're not worthy and you shouldn't be doing those things. So they don't like it when outsiders get a hold of their stuff like this, and start to divulge some of this information. They don't like it a bit. That being said, 
I think the importance of the information in and of itself, though, really makes it necessary to give a lot of this information to the public, especially in these times we're living in. We're in the times of revelation, folks. This is It's the great revealing of things. The veil's being torn away. All this stuff that was done in the dark for the past how many millennia, it's now coming to the light of day. Average people can see now, where they couldn't before. There's a spiritual awakening going on. They don't want this spiritual awakening, those people in charge. Because, see, if we have a mass spiritual awakening and people begin to understand these concepts that have been used against them in a weaponized fashion for the almost the entire recognized history of humanity here, there's going to be ramifications for those select few people who position themselves in places of power in this world, the ones that have kept this information hidden from the masses. This creates a huge problem for them. So they don't want to see that because this disrupts their grab at power. With that being the case, let's continue on here. I don't want to belabor those points for too long because there's a lot of ground to cover and I don't know just how far we're going to get tonight. Number three, the science of producing nature's grand secret is a perfect knowledge of universal nature and of art concerning the realm of metals. The practice thereof is conversant with finding the principles of metals by analysis, and after they have been made much more perfect, to conjoin them otherwise than they have been before, that from thence may result a Catholic medicine, most powerful to perfect, imper to perfect imperfect metals, and for restoring sick and decayed bodies of any sort soever." gonna pause for a moment there it talks about understanding the realm of metals so are they speaking about literal metals to some degree maybe because you see the alchemy of metalworking is a different branch of alchemy and it's one that's uh, a much more difficult branch of alchemy to work with than spagyric processes that's alchemy of plants but it does have its place in medical circles as far as homeopathy and things like that go i mean look at the uh, the idea of colloidal silver i'm sure people who listen to this broadcast are, are pretty familiar with colloidal silver well silver has a lot of antimicrobial properties therefore it is used in medical tinctures and things like that and is an effective treatment of sorts is it speaking strictly about that not so much like I said, a lot of this this language is coded or hidden. So when it's talking about the realm of metals here, in one sense, yes, it is talking about metals and the alchemy thereof. But the, in another con context, those metals can be interpreted as something else. It's a substitute word, once again, much like the idea of the salt, the sulfur, and the mercury. You have to keep an open mind when you're hearing some of this stuff. And like I said, many of these things can alter or, or be different from alchemical process to alchemical process. It's all according to the individual process. What's meant there? What you substitute in for that word when it's given in the formula. And this, this speaks directly to the idea of what's called spiritual alchemy as well. When you're speaking of precious metals like gold, trans transmuting lead into gold, well, 
That's not literally transluting, muting lead like a bar of lead into a bar of gold. That's talking about a spiritual process. Transmuting the animal man to the spiritual man. Ascending to a higher spiritual state. So it's, it's not always talking about what is plainly written in these processes. And that's the important thing to keep in mind. So when it's talking about metals... Maybe it is talking about metals in the certain context of the, the alchemy of the metals. Or maybe it's talking about metals in the context of spiritual alchemy, which takes on a totally different meaning. And these are the things you have to keep in mind when you go through the formulaic process, when you're looking at a lot of these alchemical formulas. And I've seen some of these books, man, and wow, it's like, <laughs> there's, it's extremely difficult to translate or to understand what you're what you're looking at here with many of these things the way they talk and the way they substitute in different substances or different formula different meanings for these different words in the alchemical processes and it's all different it's very hard to follow along without any formal training in it but we could pick up a little bit of the context by knowing that uh, some of these key words and terms that they use are meant as a substitute word of sorts, and that it's not truly what it's talking about. And sometimes you could infer from the context of what's being said around in the formula as to what it is that should go in there, and sometimes you can't. It's very difficult to follow this, and this is why many a philosopher has spent their entire life pursuing the pursuit of alchemy, and most have failed in, in getting there on their own. It's very hard to follow, especially when they don't speak in plain terms. So that, that's the whole thing. If you could translate it to plain terms and better understand it, then maybe you have a chance. And that's kind of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to come to some common ground here to understand better what's being done with this ancient natural science, this science of alchemy, and what the Rosicrucians brought forward from it. And that's what we're discussing here. Point number four. Those that hold public honors and offices or be always busied with private and necessary occupations, let them not strive to attain unto the acme of this philosophy, for it requireth the whole man, and being found, it possesseth him. And he being possessed, it debarreth him from all other long and serious employments, for he will esteem other things as strange and of no value unto him going to pause for a second here. So what this is saying is if you have other passions, if you have another job that's, uh, you know, takes up a lot of your time and attention, if you have an important occupation or something, don't bother looking into this because this will consume your entire being trying to figure this stuff out and look into this. Uh, so this says you're not worthy. You can't understand. And this is one of the ones that's a, a misconception, I think, too. This is a misconception that's totally construed and brought about by these secret society groups to further try to discourage people from looking into finding the truth of these matters and how these things operate. Oh, you're not smart enough. You're not good enough. You don't have enough time to devote to it. Don't bother. You see? You're not holy enough. You're not good enough. You're not purified enough. You don't follow our secret teachings. You don't follow our group. You, you're not one of our members. You don't uh, do the exercises we give you. You don't do what your teacher within the order tells you to do. You don't follow your directions. You don't take the secret oaths. You see how this kind of gets convoluted? I think it's a misnomer. I think people could understand this, at least the basic levels of it, without 
letting it consume their entire lives. Now, people that want to really, truly, maybe very deeply understand this, yes, it's going to require a lot of time and study, but I, I don't see discouraging people away from it being helpful. People will be their own judge on this kind of thing. They should still have the material available to them, should they want to pursue looking into it further. And then maybe if they get frustrated on their own and decide, you know what, this isn't worth it, they could walk away from it. But don't go and make that judgment right out of the gate and say, hey, if you have an occupation that's time-consuming and takes up a lot of your time, well, then you just you, you don't have the time for this, or you don't have the wherewithal to do this. That's not a fair assessment. I don't think that's a fair assessment. So, you know, I, I'll disagree with that terminology on this, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Let's get back into the reading. Number five. Let him that is desirous of this knowledge clear his mind from all evil passions, especially pride, which is an abomination to heaven, and is as the gate of hell. Let him be frequent in prayer and charitable, have little to do with the world, abstain from company-keeping, enjoy constant tranquility, that the mind may be able to reason more freely in private and be highly lifted up, for unless it be kindled with a beam of divine light, it will not be able to penetrate these hidden mysteries of truth. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So this is where the term hermit comes from. Hermit. It tells you, right here, abstain from company keeping. <laughs> be alone as much as you can, so that you're able to reason more freely in private and be highly lifted up. It's saying abstain from uh, interacting with people. This is where the term hermit comes from, directly from hermeticism. The hermit. So, you know, th this is an idea which I could kind of understand the reasoning thereof. You do want time alone to contemplate things, time alone with your thoughts. This is an important concept for a lot of people, but you don't have to separate yourselves from mankind altogether. But this is where the term hermit came from, because m many of these secret society groups, these secret brotherhoods, they encourage that. They want people to separate themselves from society, be alone. This is where, you know, the idea of uh, monks separating themselves as well. It, it's the same kind of concept and taking the vow of silence. It's all based upon these same teachings. And they all derive from some of this alchemical thought. So, you know, who's to say? Maybe there's something to that. I, I would say a lot of times if it's quiet and I'm by myself, I do think a lot more clearly and deeply about things. Especially if you get alone with no distractions somewhere. Gives you time to think. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But that's one of the precepts they say here. And this is another means by which they would discourage people from pursuing this knowledge. Let's read on. Number six. The alchemists who have given their minds to their well-nigh innumerable sublimations, distillations, solutions, congelations, to manifold extraction of spirits and, and tinctures, and other operations more subtle than profitable, and so have distracted themselves by a variety of errors, as so many tormentors, will never be inclined again by their own genius to the plain way of nature and the light of truth, from whence their industrious subtleties 
hath twined them, and by twinings and turnings, as by the Libyan quicksands, hath drowned their entangled wits. The only hope of safety for them remaineth in finding out a faithful guide and master, who may make the sun clear and conspicuous unto them, and free their eyes from darkness. And I'm going to pause there, folks. And this one is loaded with secret language with the green language, as they call it, the, the phonetic Kabbalah, twilight language, the secret code, all the ways that they, they use these different words. This has keywords in it. This has many keywords in it that uh, an outsider reading this text might just glaze over as, you know, maybe very poetic-sounding terms and stuff like that and think nothing more of it. But if you have any type of training in these things or have done any study in these things you may begin to recognize some of the hidden entendre here so what this is saying here is that uh, many have come to study alchemy and they they try they sit in their laboratories they do these operations they make distillations and tinctures and they do all these different processes to understand the alchemical process, but they're still missing something. That's just the physical framework. That's the symbol. That's the symbolic level you're seeing. That's the image. See, I, I've always I've been talking quite a bit about the image lately. So the laboratory setup where you're making tinctures and uh, congelations and solutions and distillations and all of these things that alchemists are classically thought to do and chemists are said to do some of this stuff too. Uh, chemistry is an inversion and a perversion of alchemy, of the natural science of alchemy. That's, that's a subject for another day though, but uh, the point is here that they're making is you could study alchemy, you could understand some of the physical processes of something like, say, a spagyric process in making tinctures and stuff like that, understand how this works, and still miss the point. And that's exactly what they're saying here. That is just the physical image, the visible material world image that represents something more spiritual. It represents something on the invisible plane, in the invisible worlds that goes on, how processes work in the invisible realms, and how they cause manifestation here in the physical but that's the thing, and a lot of them just get hung up on that, on the, the base physical level of it. Making tinctures, sublimations, making all these, these formulas. And there's nothing wrong with that, and many of them do have good uses. In fact, the whole science of homeopathy is based upon this, the making of tinctures and the, how when you reduce it down more and more, that tincture gains more and more potency. The, the less of the actual physical substance left in the tincture, the more potent the tincture. This is an important idea on a philosophical and spiritual level, more so than on the physical level that we see. But this is why homeopathy works. This is one of the secrets of homeopathy. It occurs on a spiritual plane of sorts as well. It causes greater manifestation in the invisible realm when you have less and less of the physical substance in the tincture. See, and this is something that's missed by many who pursue these studies. Very many. 
And that's the important concept here. This goes beyond some type of a base physical process. And that's the thing people got hung up on, especially in the modern age. That this physical process that was known as alchemy, well, they say it's nonsensical, it's this, it's that, and that it doesn't work. And then they go ahead and they base modern chemistry on the principles of it. And they take away important elements of the alchemical process in modern chemistry. And this causes a huge problem in manifestation here. That's why pharmaceuticals and stuff like that and all these chemical things that they produce have harmful effects because they work against the natural order rather than with the natural order. Whereas the alchemical processes work with the natural order. But see, when you take half of the process and use that to produce medicines and things like that, that causes a destructive process in the natural order and goes counter to the natural order because the whole process needs to be done, not just a portion of the process. All things function in a cyclical nature within the natural world. That's why we have seasons. All these things go through this cycle. And every part of the cycle is just as important as the other. Now, if you take part of the cycle away and just use a portion of the cycle repeatedly over and over, this eventually causes a destructive type of effect. And nature always self-corrects, so it's, it's going to have consequences, backlash. That's why we have negative outcomes with a lot of these things. But anyway, I don't want to get too hung up on that idea, but once again... We see here the uh, processes of, of performing these alchemical experiments and making the tinctures and stuff like that. It becomes what he compares to Libyan quicksands, and it drowns these alchemists in their entangled wits. So they've gotten so caught up in doing the physical process that they missed the point entirely. And therefore, they get caught up in that, and their only hope then would be to find a faithful guide or master. You know, usually somebody within one of these secret societies, and that's what they say here, a guide or master who may make the sun, S-U-N with a capital S, clear and conspicuous unto them and free their eyes from darkness. It's all about the guidance of a teacher, this one-on-one -on -one guidance that goes hand-in-hand -hand with these secret society groups. It's a teaching handed down from teacher to student in an unbroken oral succession through the ages in many of these contexts. That's what they teach in these secret society groups. That's how you get the valuable teachings. They say they don't write the valuable stuff down. It just goes from teacher to student in an oral tradition, one-on-one. -on -one. And is this true? Maybe to some degree. Maybe not. Is there value in what's being taught? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know unless we're part of one of these secret orders right? And that, that's the thing. So they, they claim that the teacher can show the way for you, light the way, give you the guidance you need. And that may be true to a certain degree or another, because there are those that are more experienced in these things that could teach the less experienced about them. That's true to a certain degree. But at another point, it becomes more of the same, more of the promotion of the brotherhood at the expense of the individual. And we see this motif has gone on through society. It's about communitarianism, communism, the greater good. That's what all of these secret society groups push. You do it all for the brotherhood. 
You take these blood oaths to the Brotherhood. You keep the secrets in the name of the Brotherhood. You dare not tell the outsiders. It's all about the collective, you see. That's the problem with these secret society groups. They've, they've kind of taken this information, kept it to themselves, and done so for the betterment of the collective. And who's the collective? Well, it's those select few people, those royal family bloodlines that, you know, uh, esteem themselves higher than everybody else. The ones that have amassed the power through the years and kept the secrets from the people, the priest kings of this world, they're the ones who are the true beneficiaries of this kind of thing, of this kind of control over the people. So when you do things in the name of the brotherhood or the universal brotherhood, the greater good, it's only usually benefiting those at the top of the power structure, just like any other pyramid scheme, isn't it? Think about that. Think of it in the terms of a pyramid scheme. We've all been victims of this to some degree, where you have an obscure relative pop up out of nowhere. Hey, let me tell you about Safeway or something like that, you know? And they try to get you to buy into this multi-level marketing company or whatever it is. Yeah, we could all make a fortune doing this. Yeah, you see how that always works out, right? <laughs> anyway, though, that, that's exactly how this works. The Brotherhood. It's only the people at the top of the Brotherhood that are the beneficiaries that see the true benefits of this. But they have all the lower underlings doing all the dirty work, don't they? Doing all the hard work, the footwork, and, uh, you know, supporting the top. It's the foundation. It's the, the base supports the top. This is what goes on with this kind of thinking at any rate, but I don't want to belabor that point. Let's move on. We got a lot more to cover, and there's no way I'm getting through not even probably a quarter of this tonight, but uh, let's continue on. A lot of important ideas here. Number seven, a studious tyro of a quick wit, constant mind, inflamed with the study of philosophy, very skillful in natural philosophy, of a pure heart, complete in manners, mightily devoted to God, though ignorant of practical chemistry, may with confidence enter into the highway of nature and peruse the books of the best philosophers. Let him seek out an ingenious and sedulous companion for himself, and not despair of obtaining his desire. Going to pause for a moment there again. Once again, coded language here, saying if you don't have any understanding of the actual physical chemical processes of this, that's okay. You could still learn by entering through the highway of nature. This means learn from nature. And it says peruse the books of the best philosophers. Well, what are the books of the best philosophers? This is coded language again. This is telling you, look at nature. Look to nature to understand certain things, how things work. Study the natural world. Seek out an ingenious and sedulous companion for yourself and not despair of obtaining your desire. So don't despair in obtaining knowledge of this. And it says, seek out somebody who can teach you. So once again, this encourages people, if they do want to pursue some type of knowledge of this, to go to one of these secret society groups, because that's the most likely place where you're going to meet somebody that knows about it. But anyway, let's continue on. Number eight, let a student of these secrets carefully beware of reading or keeping company with false philosophers, for nothing is more dangerous to a learner of any science than the company of an unskilled or deceitful man by whom erroneous principles are stamped as true, whereby a simple and credulous mind is seasoned with false doctrine. <laughs> I'm going to pause there. And that's a loaded statement because many, many, many 
of these secret society groups more than likely teach you false philosophies, false sciences, and even our modern world that we live in, our university system, our education system, they teach people falsities about science. They're deceitful, unskilled. They teach you false doctrines. We're loaded with false doctrines. We're taught this through our entire lives. We've been indoctrinated with false doctrines through all of our years of schooling and everything else. And I think we all inherently know this or recognize this at this point, that much of everything we've been taught is either a lie or it's inaccurate. So with that being the case, that makes it hard for anybody to find truth. For we do live in the age of deception, folks. It's hard to really pick out the bits of truth from anything because there's so much lie prevalent in everything. Number nine, let a lover of truth make use of few authors, but of the best note and experienced truth. Let him suspect things that are quickly understood, especially in mystical names and secret operations, for truth lies hid in obscurity. For philosophers never write more deceitfully than when plainly, nor ever more truly than when obscurely. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Make use of few authors. So it says believe very few people. And usually it will be, you know, whichever ones that uh, the secret society group in particular upholds as being a true and accurate one to go by. So they're telling you, read only the works that we tell you. Okay, don't think for yourself. Just go by the authority of the author. And they put author with a capital A here, representing authority. That's where, where do you think authority comes from? The word authority, author. They're telling you, only use the approved authority. <laughs> Don't we see this through much of society today in other contexts? Only believe the authority figure. And then it says here, especially for things that you suspect that are quickly understood in mystical names and secret operations. So it's telling you, when you see something that you think in this coded language or you think is a symbol for something else don't try to make your own guess as to what it means or do your own exploration into what it means just go to the authority ask the authority figure for what it is that is the truth that is hid in that obscurity and then it goes on to say here for philosophers never write more deceitfully when plainly nor ever more truly than when they write obscurely and a lot of this, I think there might be a kernel of truth to that kind of a statement. But a lot of this equates to the idea that uh, many of the ideas and concepts they try to portray are difficult to explain in plain terms. So they have to use colorful language or uh, obscure type language to describe these things. So I think it's necessary to a certain degree, but also to another degree. I would say that, speaking plainly, that's not always deceitful, is it? But they say the philosophers, when they speak plainly, they're lying. That's what's being said here. Here's the thing. This philosopher who wrote this is saying that plainly to us. So isn't that contradictory in and of itself? So this author is saying that the philosophers, this philosopher who wrote this, is saying philosophers, when they speak plainly, they're being deceitful. So he's plainly saying here that uh, when a philosopher says something that sounds very plain, that it's a lie. So, <laughs> so is he lying or is he telling the truth? So how do you take that? 
I just find these things amusing sometimes. But anyway, we all understand the idea at this point that much of this stuff is written in coded language on purpose to obscure, obfuscate things on purpose. And you have to try to decipher it. We get that. Uh, but, you know, is it necessary? Maybe to a certain degree with certain concepts, but no, it's it's really not when it gets down to it. But let's continue on. Okay, number 10. As for the authors of Chiefest Note, who have discoursed both acutely and truly of the secrets of nature and hidden philosophy, Hermes and Morianus Romanus, amongst the ancients, are in my judgment of the highest esteem. Amongst the moderns, Count Trevisan and Ramundus Lolius are in greatest reverence with me, for what that most acute doctor hath omitted, none almost hath spaken. Let a student therefore peruse his works, yea, let him often read over his former testament and codicil, and accept them as a legacy of very great worth. Gonna pause there, folks. So, here, Westcott's telling you, this is who you read. Listen to these guys. These couple of guys that I said here. These are the ones that are the authority. Don't listen to anybody else. Let's continue reading what he says. To these two volumes, let him add both his volumes of practice, out of which works all things desirable may be collected, especially the truth of the first matter, of the degrees of fire, and the regimen of the whole, wherein the final work is finished, and those things which our ancestors so carefully labored to keep secret. The occult causes of things and the secret motions of nature are demonstrated nowhere more clearly and faithfully. Concerning the first and mystical water of the philosophers, he hath set down few things yet very pithily. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So once again, he's telling you, listen to these guys, okay, especially when it comes to these certain key terms that he names here. And first matter, the degrees of fire, the regimen of the whole, the final work. And he says here that uh, of these things which their ancestors have carefully labored to keep secret, it's about the occult causes of things, he's speaking. Okay, these are the hidden portions of manifestation that we are not taught about in our modern science. Things of the invisible world. So this is what he's saying these authors speak upon. And that these are the true things. This is the true authority. Now, I don't know how to take Westcott. See, and that's the thing. I mean, he was associated with the Theosophical Society. He was also a highly esteemed Rosicrucian. And, you know, he definitely knew his stuff about hermetics and philosophy and things like that. But I don't know what the guy's motivations were. And I don't know if he had all the correct information. But I take a great deal of value in trying to discern through these things. So I keep an open mind. I read his stuff. And I look at what he recommends. But uh, I won't stop there. See, that's the thing. I think it's important to get varied viewpoints of these different concepts to see if they hold true or not. And if you only get it from one source, well, that's not something that's easily verifiable then. If it only comes from one source. So you want to try and find multiple streams of this alchemical information. See, that's the important thing. When you're, you're trying to hunt down the roots of this stuff, and you're trying to hunt down what's true and what's not true with it, 
you have to look at all these different portions that they call underground streams of the alchemical teaching that's come forward through the years, through various, various different means. So you have to track down these currents, so to say, and uh, find out what aligns and what doesn't to find out what's true and not. And this Rosicrucian current is only one stream or current through which much of the alchemical teaching has come. But this is the one that I think is most per pertinent to Western society and Western culture. Uh, so it's important to kind of parse through these things. But uh, he goes on to speak about uh, that uh, this these couple of uh, authors that he mentioned uh, talk about things like the mystical waters of the philosophers. They don't talk much about it, but they talk very pithily about it, he says, which means there's a lot of hidden language encoded in that, too. So... You know, you'll need a little bit more understanding to kind of get through something like that. But let's continue on here. Okay, number 11. As for that clear water sought for by many, found by so few, yet obvious and profitable unto all, which is the basis of the philosopher's work, a noble Pole, not more famous for his learning than subtlety of wit, who wrote anonymously, but whose name notwithstanding a double anagram hath betrayed, hath in his novum lumen chemicum parabola and enigma, as also in his tract on sulfur, spoken largely and freely enough, yea, he hath expressed all things concerning it so plainly that nothing can be more satisfactory to him that desireth knowledge. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So he's going on, he's expounding about this guy that wrote about the waters of the philosophers. I forget what his name was up there. He's claiming that uh, the information he put down in there is expressed pretty plainly. But, see, he went on and contradicted himself now, didn't he? Because in the last portion there, <laughs> under the last number heading, he said that he wrote very few things about it, but very pithily. And now he's saying he spoke plainly about it. So if you want an understanding of that, you need to read his writings. So, you know... What do you do in this regard? I would say, you know, try and find this writing to expound upon that. But let's continue on. Number 12. Philosophers do usually express themselves more pithily in types of enigmatical figures as by a mute kind of speech than by words. See, for example, Senior's Table, the allegorical pictures of Rosarius, the pictures of Abraham Judius in Flamel, and the drawings of Flamel himself, of the later sort, the rare emblems of the most learned Michael Marius, wherein the mysteries of the ancients are so fully opened and as new perspectives, they present antiquated truth, and though designed remote from our age, yet are near unto our eyes and are perfectly to be perceived by us. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So he says here, oftentimes many of these ideas are conveyed in either symbolic language or sometimes they're communicated through art. And this is a hugely important idea, art. Many alchemical ideas and concepts are conveyed through art. Statues, paintings, all of these different ideas, drawings, woodcuts. So many of these profound ideas are encapsulated in the symbolism of these works of art. So this is why things like the cathedrals are so important. 
this is why, uh, you know, he, he talks about guys like Flamel, the works of Flamel, the drawings of Flamel. Because oftentimes, these different forms of art become another current of that underground stream of knowledge, of alchemical thought. It's the conveyance, it's the vehicle through which the alchemical ideas travel through time forward for people to pick up upon. This is, by and large, what the cathedrals were all about. The Gothic cathedrals. It was a conveyance of it, the alchemical stream, the underground stream, the current through which alchemical thought was transmitted. All hidden away in symbolism, in the art of the building. See, the builders, you don't think the builders would use a building to convey their message? That's why the cathedrals are so important. That's also why the cathedrals are being burned to the ground today in the modern era. They're being destroyed. The statues are being taken away, broken up. The artwork's being destroyed. In some cases, like the Notre Dame Cathedral, the buildings are catching on fire, and much of the damage is irreplaceable. So much knowledge lost just by doing so. So the importance of art, this is a huge thing. And this is part of uh, what it means to be human. These are the missing piece in much of this. It's the tool, the conveyance through which concepts, ideas, truths, natural truths are conveyed. This al alchemical stream, this current, this underground current. All the great eras of art have had some semblance of natural science or alchemy conveyed through that medium, through whatever medium is there. Look at the great artwork throughout history. The beautiful artwork. And, you know, you go back far enough, it was all about the piece itself rather than the artist. Things changed come the Renaissance ideas, when things got more firmly entrenched into the material paradigm here. Before that, it was the, the artwork that was important. It wasn't the artist. You didn't want to take credit for it. The art stood on its own. It conveyed a beautiful message, an archetypal message. That's one of the hidden streams here, and I think we're going to just close up on that idea here tonight. We didn't get very far into this work, but uh, I don't think a, a more profound idea could be touched upon there that we could leave off with such a profound idea. Exploring the idea of art. It's a huge thing. Looking at sculpture, statue, paintings. Look at all the messages that are hidden in sim symbolic language in the arts and that's why things like i said like the gothic cathedrals were so important and are so important today why do you think why do you think the intelligence communities and the secret society groups that fund the intelligence communities had actually proffered the idea and funded the idea of making all this horrible modern art you get some idiot to splash some paint on a canvas and not put any thought into it and make it out to be some, you know, profound, beautiful painting or whatever and, you know, set this thing up as being art, being, you know, the beautiful art of the day when it's garbage 
compared to classical art. Why do you think people like Maria Abramovich are so highlighted by the elites of this world? If you're not sure who she is, go look up the whole John Podesta thing, folks. Spirit cooking. Some very disgusting ideas that go along with that, and they call it art. It's a perversion. It's an inversion of this alchemical stream. You see, they've even tried to hijack that. That's why they want to destroy the true arts. Why do you think the British Museum goes and, you know, confiscates all the artwork from everywhere? So <laughs> they've, they've tried to take the idea of the arts. They're trying to craft a new type of material paradigm through the use of art in this way. And they've, they've funded this modern art movement and they've funded all of these hideous, you know, uh, things that they call art, like the, the whole spirit cooking gig that uh, Abramovich did and does and all the disgusting things that go along with that. They've tried to hijack that and use that in a weaponized form as well because they recognize the value. They recognize the value in art as a form of conveying the symbolic language, the archetypal idea, keeping the alchemical process, the intention, the true nature, alive, understandable by somebody, because it takes on this archetypal form. And because it's archetypal, the human mind will understand something at a very base level about it. So just having these works of art standing the test of time conveying that message in an archetypal form is dangerous to those who have power because it speaks something true to the human spirit, something true about nature when you have beautiful art like this. And they can't have that if they want to maintain their power. So that's, you know, one of the big points that needed to be made here tonight and why I wanted to go through the Hermetic Arcanum to a certain degree, is to convey the idea that it's got very many different points through which it's expressed. The symbology is everywhere, and it's, it's important. It ex expresses ideas on an archetypal level to people, so we need to understand a little more about that, and we need to understand the ways in which it's conveyed that we're not aware, because it all has to do with the way manifestation works in this world works differently than we're told. It goes through many different steps in invisible worlds, in invisible places that we don't see, in invisible processes we don't see before it manifests here. And likewise, so do we. We go through many different processes on levels we don't quite understand that go beyond just this physical place. And this is all part and parcel of what alchemy or the old natural sciences are, the hermetic philosophy, hermetic arcanum as it were. It's expressed in many ways, and it's been kept hidden from us by these secret society groups and by those people in positions of power today. So that being the case, I think it's important to have a foundation in understanding some of the techniques they use, and a lot of it has to do with the hidden language through which the ideas are conveyed, the symbology, the symbols. And it's not always just words. Sometimes they use words that convey a symbol to you, and sometimes they use art that conveys much, much more than just words can. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? Have we all heard that before? 
It's absolutely true. And, you know, one symbol can be worth thousands of words. So, <laughs> uh, that being the case, all these ideas are important to keep in mind, and it's important to have a little bit of a foundation in understanding some of the language here. That's why I wanted to convey the idea primarily tonight that uh, the symbols convey different meanings. There's a lot of nuance in them, and not only that, sometimes the plain meaning is not the meaning you're supposed to pick up on, and sometimes they use code words that could mean different things in different contexts, such as in the alchemical processes when they say sulfur, salt, <laughs> mercury. They're, that's not what they're talking about. It's, it's a substitute word. See, it's all part of a, a process that they have. There's different steps in the process, and sometimes they'll substitute in a certain, I don't know, how should we say, ingredient or a certain substance or factor into that that they call something else just to keep people off the path. So they'll say the sulfur. Well, they're not really talking about literal sulfur. They're talking about something else that could be represented by the symbol of sulfur in this formula because they have definite formulas that they've put together that work where you could substitute different things in different spots according to different timings for different processes to make them work. And a lot of it has to do with this three worlds idea that was touched upon in the beginning here. Salt, sulfur, and mercury. What do you think that has to do with? To talking about a different level. Something substituted in at these different levels in the formula to make it work. See? And some of these people in positions of power, they have intricate knowledges of these things, and we don't. And that gives them an advantage. So that's why it's important to explore these ideas. So uh, I wanted to thank you all tonight for tuning in. We're going to wrap it up here. Uh, I hope that this was informative, and we'll catch you next time. Have a good night, everyone.
Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm. Coming soon.